0: All right. So we started the series last week on simplicity, simple things, just like Eric was saying. And um, if you remember last week, if you were here, Eric started talking about chaos, loneliness, and fear. Three things that we face as human beings in this life. The result of the breaking of our relationship with the re- relationship that Adam and Eve had with God in the garden, this, that sin breaks. The result is chaos, loneliness, and fear. So our verse this week is John sixteen twenty four. John 16, 24, which says, Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. So just so you know where we're headed, I thought I'd give you my main point first. And then, if the only reason you're here is to listen to me speak, then you can take off. But if that's the only reason you're here, man, I'd like to meet you. (laughs) So, here it is. The purpose of prayer is joy. The purpose of prayer is joy. I mean, there's more to my sermon than that, but if you don't remember anything else, remember that. The purpose of prayer... This joy. As I was going through this verse, I kept grinding through three questions that I think we need to ask. The first question is, what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? What is the significance of Jesus teaching his disciples to ask in his name? All right, pop quiz. What's in a name that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. So I, I'm, I don't know Shakespeare very well. I actually had to look up and make sure that was from Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> but it's true, right? So the idea is a rose is a pretty name for a flower, but if it were called a blob it would still be a pretty flower. It would still smell good. We would. The name rose holds significance because it belongs to a beautiful thing. So last time I was up here, I told you all that Lane is pregnant. Woo! I have more news. We're having a girl. Yay! Her name is not Rose. <laughs> so the funny thing... <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. So the funny thing about having a girl is you start to look at names, right? This, this, is what we're, this is exactly where we're going. You think, you know, this name or that name, do they fit together? I like this name. Do you like that name? So Lane and I are going through a list. You know, they've got, like, the baby names lists, And you just type into Google, and there's, like, 50 million lists that people have put together for baby names. And you know that people spend a lot of time on those lists all the time. So we haven't picked a name yet. But we're going through this list, and this name comes up. Let's, let's say the name is Blob, just for the sake of continuing... The narrative. So his name comes up, and we're scrolling through this list, and I muttered, Blob. And Lane turned to me and said, I take it you know someone named Blob. (laughs) And I said, yes, and we decided not to call our daughter that name. (laughs) But that's how it goes, right? Right? A name holds significance because it belongs to someone. It carries who the person is and what defines them with it. I guarantee you that you could bring up the name of Jesus almost anywhere in the world, and someone would have an opinion. And depending on where you are in the world, they might have to share that opinion with you through a jail cell. Because the name of Jesus is significant. To ask in Jesus' name implies relationship with Jesus. It implies a knowledge of Jesus and who he is and what he longs for and stands for. So Hebrews four fourteen through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, So the writer of Hebrews is saying, see, because of our relationship with Jesus, we can go before the throne of the king, where normally to go before the throne of a king as a subject, you would never make it even to the throne room. You know, Jesus is like a high-priced defense attorney, you know, in, in Law and Order, or whatever crime procedural TV show you like. There's sometimes a criminal, and you know the criminal did it because they showed you the criminal doing it, Uh, but they have a really good lawyer, so they don't get convicted. Except that, in this case, Jesus knows we sinned, and God, who's the judge in this picture, knows that we sinned. Hmm? All right. The reason we don't get what we deserve is because Jesus stands there with us and says, I know him. I know her. I died for them. So, what Jesus says in this verse, by the way, this is before his death. He says it to his disciples, and it's an absolutely crazy statement for any first century Jew. You would never ask God for something in, in someone's name. The way to God, we talked about this last week in Eric's sermon, which you can go back and listen to. The way to God is the Torah. It's through the temple and through sacrifices. The priest makes the sacrifice for you. He stands before God and, and makes you right with God. And that's why Jesus says, until now. This verse starts with until now. He is declaring that he is the way. It's through Jesus that they were going to talk to God. To speak in Jesus' name is to declare that you have a relationship with Jesus, and therefore you have a relationship with God. So, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. The second question we have to think about is what does it mean when we ask and do not receive? When I was a freshman in college, I went to a small Christian school in Michigan called Spring Arbor University, and I took a class called Gospels and Acts, and the teacher was a friend of my parents. A big part of the class was a paper that, we, that everyone had to write called An Exegesis, which is basically... It's an explanation of a biblical text. It's an interpretation. Essentially, it's what I'm doing now, but with more Greek. And the teacher had this list of verses that he called hard verses that we had to pick from. And they're verses basically that seem like they contradict other places in the Bible, or they, they are hard to understand, or our experience tells us something different. And I'm about 95% sure that this verse was on that list. Because Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Why then do we not get what we asked for? Why, when we pray for things we long for, does God apparently do nothing? Short answer is I I don't know. I don't know. I do know that this verse is often abused. We're told lies about the amount of faith we have or lies about the right way to ask God. And these lies they sit in the idea of God as as wish granter, as a genie. But also this verse is just hard because God doesn't really answer the why question. When Job demands to know why all the things that happened to him happened to him, God's response is basically, who are you to ask me these things? I am God. I think we can get close to an answer, though. So the first answer is that sometimes we ask for things that we are not prepared for. If in a couple of years, my daughter came to me and said, "Dad, I want the keys. I need to drive to the store." I would say no because you're only two years old. The Bible is it's it's full of people who had to wait. David waited to be king. He waited years in exile to be king. Abraham waited for a son and then tried to speed up the waiting. And Simeon, if you know the story of Advent, Simeon was told by God that he would live to see the Messiah, and he did. He had to wait to see the Savior. The second answer is, we often ask for things out of our sin. We ask for things we don't need or things that actually drive us away from God. So James 4, 1 through 3 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James 4, 1 through 3. Yeah. When we went through James a few months ago, Eric spoke on this passage, and he referred back to Jeremiah 2.13, which says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Taking these two pictures, we get an idea of the impact of our sin on prayer. We dig our own wells, hoping to quench our thirst, and we get mad at God when we come away thirsty. We pray for things that we cannot hope, that cannot hope to satisfy the chaos. And the loneliness and the fear. We pray things like, if only my wife was, if only my husband would, if I just had the right job, the right relationship, a better car, a better house. The result of these kinds of prayers is dissatisfaction, broken relationships and more thirsty, crying out in disappointment that God did not do what we wanted. The really hard thing is, often our prayers are for good things. But we ask out of needing to fill an emptiness. And then we mask our emptiness by saying, in Jesus' name I pray. We become, we become like a child asking dad if they can eat an entire bag of marshmallows because mom said they could, even though we know that mom didn't say they could. There's a difference between childlike belief in a parent's ability to perform miracles and a childlike deceit for things they want. We need to ask for miracles, but we also need to surrender ourselves to the line in the Lord's Prayer, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or, is not as Rod would say, not Rod's will, but God's will. The third answer to this question is that sometimes God has plans that we cannot see or understand. The disciples experience this all the time with Jesus, especially the last days before his death and resurrection. All around this verse in chapter 16 are Jesus' last instructions to his disciples and really confusing phrases like, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me I mean, what does that mean? I mean, the disciples still thought they were going to revolt. They still thought they were going to raise up arms and kick the Romans out and fight for independence. That's why when they're in the garden and they come to arrest Jesus, Peter has a sword. And James and John go to Jesus and say, when you come into your glory, when you become king on earth, can we sit at your right hand and your left? Like they think he's still going to set up his, his kingdom on earth right then, that they're all going to rise up and beat the Romans. Time and again, the disciples show that they had no idea What was going to happen. And that's the way it is with us. We read the Bible, we spend time in prayer, we act in the way that we think God has called us to, and still things don't work out the way we think they should. But we have to continue forward and strive towards relationship with Jesus because this is our last question for this verse. What is joy? Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. What is joy? Last week, Eric referred to a similar verse. He said that having joy, having our joy made complete is to experience the thing Jesus is offering. Right? He compared it to Gareth's sweet rolls and the the joy that Gareth has when you eat something that he's created for you. Jesus is offering something in this verse and he longs to see that thing fulfilled in the lives of his disciples and in our lives as well. Did you know that the village has a website? Did you know that on that website there is a link to our old website? And did you know that on our old website, there is a link to sermons going back more than 10 years? And that you can go back and listen to what Eric and Rod said in their sermons 10 years ago? You can, it's true. I went back, there's this old sermon like nine years ago, I think. Um, it's on the second half of John 16, sermon by Rod. And I want to read to you what he said about joy. Joy is not happiness. A lot of times we mistake that. Happiness is an emotion that comes and goes. There's something rich inside of us. Those of us who have walked with him for a long time begin to experience this deep down joy. The pleasure of God's company. That's what joy is. The pleasure of God's company. This deep reflection inside the character and nature of Jesus that brings peace to us. That joy, that deep down inside stuff, means that we can walk through horrible things. And we can walk through them not with happy smiles on our faces, but we can weep and be full of joy. We can sorrow and be full of joy. We can be in anguish and full of joy. We can go through pain and be full of joy because of who Jesus is in us. That he invites us into that most intimate of intimate relationships. And when we have that most intimate relationship, there is that deep undergirding, that deep foundational joy that's in us. This is joy, the pleasure of God's company. The purpose of prayer is joy. If I were to rewrite this verse, I would write, Out of relationship with Jesus comes relationship with God. This is what Jesus is saying, that because of his sacrifices, we can experience the goodness of what he, he experiences. That the relationship that we had in the garden with God comes again through the name of Jesus. The chaos and the loneliness and the fear of our broken world have been healed through what Jesus did on the cross. So now, through relationship with Jesus, we can experience the pleasure of God's company. We all have two deep longings to be known and to be loved. And when we seek to have these longings met through the pleasure of God's company, we can find peace in the midst of chaos, belonging in the midst of loneliness, and love that overcomes fear. So I have a friend, he always ends his talk saying, so what? So if the purpose of prayer is joy, and joy is the pleasure of God's company, so what? What now? What do we do? We should be spurred to action by this verse. Last year, we talked about taking a personal inventory. And this verse should drive us to take a prayer inventory of sorts. We need to be asking questions like, how do I pray? Is there joy when I pray? What stands in the way of me spending time in prayer? Maybe read through or sit down to write your 20 prayers for the year and share them with someone close to you. Because we, we sometimes think of, of prayer as a, a purely personal time with God when there's actually a deep richness in inviting the community of God to encourage and support us. And if you're stuck on where to start when you pray, Try starting with a prayer partner, someone to keep you accountable. Try setting a timer for a short time, five or ten minutes, and find somewhere to sit quietly, which I know is hard sometimes. But I think often we don't enter in because we're afraid of the silence or of letting go of the busyness of life. Another thing to try is just, if you don't know what to say, find a psalm and read it out loud or find a book of prayers and read them out loud. And my last thought is we have to take seriously the declaration of in Jesus' name we pray. It's become a cast-off tagline when it's really the most deeply significant part of our prayer. It's a beautiful thing to declare that we enter in to the pleasure of God's company through the sacrifice of his son.